It's time for the PowerMizzou.com podcast with interviews and analysis of your Missouri Tigers. Now, here's your host, Gabe DeArmond. Welcome back to the PowerMizzou.com podcast, post-signing day edition, National Signing Day, obviously on Wednesday, and very shortly we will start looking forward to the class of 2018, but we're going to talk a little more 2017, everything that went down. Gabe DeArmond here, Brian Austin here. And we are joined today by the recruiting coordinator, and I'm not, I can't remember, correct me if I, that title is wrong, but A.J. Alfadale on the phone with us, is is that actually your title? Uh, my official title is Director of Recruiting, and then uh, Austin Carter-Samuels will be the recruiting coordinator. Okay, okay. Now, yep. bef- before we get it, we want to talk a little bit about yesterday and, and just kind of general uh, recruiting stuff with you, but I, I know that in the last few years, uh, these recruiting departments have kind of come up. They didn't used to exist, and now all kinds of places have them. Uh, this is this is something that's kind of new. You have a bunch of guys working for you. It's kind of new in college football, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of the college programs have uh, started to take on an NFL model in terms of uh, having a personnel department. The the rigors of coaching, uh, you know, it's pretty demanding. Uh, so. Some of the things that we're uh, we're able to do just in terms of setting the table for coaches to be able to evaluate players um, is big. It allows the coaching staff to streamline the process tremendously and be a lot more efficient and cover a lot more ground. Plus, as a program that has a very distinct footprint, you know, historically we've been Texas. Now our move to the SEC gives us a very southeast footprint. We wanted to move north this year into Detroit and Chicago. Um and then also we want to be national when the situation arises that we can pull a good player from someplace outside of our footprint that gets pretty expansive, and so having a personnel department that can um, cut through some of the layers of that and get the situation to where the coaches just have to evaluate players, make decisions there, and then develop relationships, uh, you know, it becomes a pretty vital part of the operation. Now, I asked Andy Hill the same question yesterday, and I understand every every program talks about the kids they got and not the ones they didn't, but just – Take us through kind of the last last week and a half for you guys. You've been involved in recruiting at every level, so you understand the game. But how hectic are the 14 days before signing day? Uh, it's incredibly uh, nerve-wracking. I mean, uh, you know, we knew we were in on some good players. One of the things that we felt like we had to do as a program is out-evaluate other programs, uh, and we felt like we did a great job of that. We, You know, we're pretty relentless and pretty tireless as it comes to uh, – trying to develop relationships and, and be out in front of people in terms of identifying guys and some of those things. And uh, then the deal is you got to hold on. And uh, so it becomes, you know, some kids, when you get a case cook who got overtures from Georgia and Florida late, and those are you know, right there in his backyard. And he was a kid that loved what we had going on and, uh, you know, was pretty comfortable in his decision. And obviously you have other ones that, um, you know, that don't fall into that same narrative. And, you know, you hate to lose anybody, but um, one of the things that we always want to do is be prepared if those things happen. If that eventuality takes place, then, you know, we want to have guys up and ready to replace and then hopefully we stay status quo or in some cases get a little bit better in those positions. Uh, You know, for us, sometimes we have guys that are waiting in the wings that might be actually a little bit better than the commit. And, you don't, you know, you're not going to cut ties with those guys because of that. But if they choose to move on, then that gives you an opportunity to get a guy in who you thought might be a gem. And, and so, you know, if that happens, then that's great. Coach, something that's really taken off with uh, Twitter, it seems like, the, the graphics side of recruiting. How many people do you have working on that kind of stuff? I mean, and how much has it changed in the last four or five years? 
Uh, it is dramatically different. Uh, you know, anytime you get into the creative realm, uh, people are going to really push the envelope there. Um, and we have certain parameters, obviously, that we have to work within. But within that, you know, we want to try to be as good as there is in the creative side. And Kyle Morris is um, the guy that's in charge of all of our graphic and video. I'm sorry, our graphic presence primarily. He does a little bit of video stuff. Uh, we also have Shuey, who's over video, but Kyle does a little bit of his own stuff there. But He's the one, whenever you see graphics, whenever you see something creative, specifically from the Show Me account, that's going to be Kyle Morris. And then uh, on the other side, across the street in the athletic department, uh, the artwork that you see from Mizzou football is Allie Fisher, who also does a great job. And each of those guys, they have their own unique style. Um, You can kind of, if you look through the Mizzou football and the Show Me, you see a little bit of a distinct difference in style. But they've they've come together from a branding and uh, an imagery standpoint to kind of have some unique markings that will be consistent throughout and so we end up having a great presence there kyle has some interns to help him out a little bit but as it stands right now uh, on the pure football side you know kyle's there you know sometimes you know he's got a couple couches in the in the recruiting department and and kyle's there almost 24 hours a day sometimes so he's great he's an advantage for us i mean the casual fan might think well it's just pictures and i mean how important is that stuff to these kids is it is it maybe oversold a little bit just by because you see it so much, or is it is it really make a difference? Uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, especially with teenagers, imagery perception is you know is huge in terms of painting a picture for kids as a vanity side too. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but you know, flattery is great when it comes to recruiting. And uh, the other thing that we try to do besides just our side of it, a lot of things that you don't see get uh, posted is some of the infographics, some of the comparative information that you get out to kids and you do it in a graphic form and it's much different than a coach on the other end of the phone rattling off numbers when you got a visual in front of you and it's done in a dramatic way. Um, so there's a lot of that too. And one of the things that I wanted to do uh, in terms of having a little bit of control in what some of our graphic presence is, and again, these are some things that you might not see as much, but I just feel like information is so important. It's one thing to have a conversation as far as developing a relationship or to send a graphic that you know, might be flattering to recruits. Another thing to get them concrete information that they're going to use to make a decision to validate why Mizzou is the best place for them to lay out what our history has been, especially our recent history, um, to lay out the fact that you can have the ultimate success at this university. And, uh, you know, so we use graphics to do that as well. Uh, I want to ask you, AJ, one more just about yesterday. Um, Take take fans kind of inside your guys' building. The only time we've really gotten to kind of see what the process was like was a few years ago when when Doriel Green Beckham committed. And I mean, we're watching the show, and and you can see the coaches react when it happens. But take us to you got like twenty three kids that hey the letters are in by eleven thirty. Yep. No no worries, nothing like that. And then you guys are waiting for a couple more hours for one kid, and then all the way till I think it was finally about six fifteen last night till Malik Young signed what goes into those last six, eight hours where you guys are thinking, hey, we got these guys wrapped up and, and now you got to work on it a little more? Well, you know, you you always feel good about it going in. You've had last communications with guys and, and they're saying, hey, I'm set. I'm going to send my stuff in. And then you got set times that you're expecting to get paperwork from guys. And once you get a couple minutes over that set time, then all of a sudden you start worrying. Uh, you know, you get not you're not in a state of panic, but you start worrying because you know there's other schools that have had that last-second conversation with them that are trying to turn them. Uh, you know, they're getting letters of intent from several different schools. And uh, just like with verbal commitments, a kid, you know, goes to bed and you think the kid's going to commit to you the next morning, he thinks he's going to commit to you the next morning. And then 
wakes up and he commits somewhere else. Well, the same thing can happen on signing day. Um, and you just never know what might factor into that. So once they get off schedule a little bit, you worry. Um, you know, we also had that with Tyree Gillespie a little bit later than what we thought. And so, you know, he was a kid that we felt like was an absolute steal in the class. I mean, just dynamite football player. And you worry, you know, who comes in at the last minute. And, uh, you know, same thing with our two defensive linemen. Uh, and obviously you referred to them a little bit earlier, Malik Young being the last one. And then we got uh, Walter Palmore's. Uh, paperwork in a little bit earlier than that. But, uh, you know, Malik was literally, uh, you know, Walter got some overtures uh, we heard and kind of had to do some resorting and some rethinking, realize we were the best place for him. Everything, uh, you know, stood as we thought there, but much later than we thought in the day. So there's some worry there because you never know what's going on. But then with Malik, it went all the way to six, and he literally did not know where he was going to go. He loved our place, loved our people, um, you know, Another school came in and is right there with them. He even told me that he, he had halfway signed the letter of intent to the other school and just had a, a a bad feeling about it and changed his mind. And so we were literally that close on him at a position of tremendous need. Um, and so, you know, with both those guys, and I mentioned this in St. Louis, and uh, I don't think I said in Columbia, maybe in St. Louis. I think Coach Odom mentioned it in Columbia. But um, we targeted the top three defensive tackles nationally based on our evaluation. And, you know, you hope you get one. If you get two, you're living real good. We never thought we'd get all three of those guys, which we did. So, you know, we feel like our defensive tackle position, because of that, gets stocked. But you're waiting until the last minute on Malik Young. And then just like DGB, which is a little bit more celebrated, you get that same reaction from coaches, high fives all around, celebration, because we know we got a big piece towards helping us become viable in SEC East again. Now, you mentioned the letters of intent, and obviously Malik has at least two in front of him. But I – you guys signed 25 guys, but like you send out a lot more than 25 letters of intent, right? Because just like some kid might decide, hey, I want to sign somewhere else, you never know if there's a kid out there who might say, hey, last minute, man, I'm going to change my mind. I mean, there are some of these kids out there who probably have like 10 letters sitting in front of them, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. Some, you know, if a kid hasn't, uh, if a kid hasn't communicated with you specifically, if you're out, you're going to send them a letter of intent because you never know what can happen. Uh, we didn't have a ton of those this year. We, you know, again, we targeted guys and got on them and developed relationships and got guys locked in early. So, you know, we felt really solid. And then we had a few guys that were contested and we obviously sent those guys, uh, letters of intent expecting them to sign with us. But, uh, you know, there really was nobody this year that was still in play for us that we liked that we kind of sent that thing out there on a, uh, you know, wing of the prayer. I mean, I guess you could send them out there hoping they accidentally signed the wrong one and you get a guy, but, uh, but we, we didn't have a ton of that this year. In years past, I'm sure there have been, and there's also guys nationally that are probably getting 15 letters sent to them because they haven't really declared exactly, you know, what their intentions are yet. Yeah, and I mean, things like that happen. The one in Missouri that I know, and, and I don't know, you've probably heard this story, but Mike Anderson that played for the Broncos, like Missouri sent a letter of intent to the wrong Mike Anderson, and that kid, because uh-huh. he didn't have one, ended up signing with Utah and ended up being an NFL player. I mean, it's crazy some of the things that can happen with that. Yeah, I actually had not heard that, and I would be fully expecting that if we did that, I probably would be looking for work the next day. So, and I would it'd be well deserved too. <laughs> AJ, the so, I uh, mean, most of the focus now is just the 2018, but it's I mean, you have already been working on that class for quite a while, and I mean, 2019 offers have gone. How far out do you guys push the envelope on that stuff? Um, you know, for us. Uh, and it's gotten earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. And going back to yesteryear when I was a kid, you didn't get a, uh, a formal offer until you were on campus, on your official visit, the last day. 
and it was so much easier to evaluate everything you needed to see about a kid to be sure that we want this kid in our program. And now you just you can't keep up if you do it that way. It would be a lot more prudent and a lot more sound. You'd make a lot less mistakes. But, you know, nowadays there's eighth-grade kids getting offered, there's freshmen getting offered. You have no clue what they're going to end up being. Um, you know, when we follow suit, we're that way too. Um, you know, and for us, um, you know, we love to focus on one class at a time. You obviously have to blend 17 and 18. Fortunately for us, we're not allowed to communicate with 2019 and 2020 kids. So that's not a big burden as it relates to just uh, time management. Uh, but you do want to have those guys, especially your in-state guys, you want to have those guys identified so you know who they are. And if you feel like they project to an offer, you want to make sure you're there with them as well. But for us, you know, it's, you know, we worked on 17 and 18 at the same time. And then once September 1 rolls around, we'll be working on 18 and 19 at the same time as far as, you know, just being able to communicate with guys and introduce ourselves to guys. But, you know, during this window before September 1, then we'll, we'll be heavy 18. Uh, you know, we'll focus on that. We'll have our work cut out for us in 18. Uh, great class in state, as everybody knows. And then there's some guys nationally um, that, again, we've gotten out on early. We sit really good with them. Uh, communicate well they're very interested in us a lot of really highly regarded guys have us in their their top group right now so we're excited about that um you know so going forward 18 will be a big year for us talking with uh missouri director of recruiting aj ofadala and um aj you and i well first of all i want to address that you are the director of recruiting but there were two separate periods this year um where you actually because a coach left were out on the road as one of the full-time recruiters. So how did you kind of have to shift between two roles and, and how does that work then when, when Jackie Shipper, Greg Brown leaves and, and coach Odom comes to you and says, okay, we want to send you out now. Well, that's when, that's when having a great staff. And, you know, I mentioned Austin earlier, ACS as he, as he's more commonly known uh, around the building, uh, he's dynamite. I mean, you know, he's a f- former college quarterback type, a personality brilliant kid um you know and he's really really vital and then you know we also have michael agnew and bill lang mike lackey kenronte walker all those guys have their different roles and so when i have to switch hats it's incredibly difficult to be on the road and act as an assistant coach in regards to recruiting and still get all the logistical things done that you need to get done and so those guys completely take that over i have to be available to just kind of talk through decisions but you know those are the guys i trust um, you know, I didn't mention Jake Bresky. He's awesome as well, too. But those are guys that I really trust. They do a great job. They accept their role. We have a great team working in that regard. And so when I'm on the road in that role, uh, I know everything's going to get taken care of very efficiently. Um, you know, we communicate back and forth, but I just don't have to do the actual legwork on some things. I'm not the best multitasker in the world anyway. I'm kind of a <laughs> one-track focus kind of guy. So once I'm in that mode, I'm heavy into that mode. And those guys bail me out on that. So you know, I always feel like I really owe them big time. Yesterday during Coach Odom's uh, press conference with the media, he he mentioned that anytime there's a ranking or somebody's keeping track of something, he wants to win it. And the question yep. was posed to him that he, I mean, this last couple of seasons has been lower in the rankings of the SEC when it, you're looking at national recruiting sites, whichever ones. Yep. I mean, is how do you balance? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, obviously, that's not a focus. You're not going out saying, oh, we need to get some four stars. But, I mean, Right. How, how do you look at like wanting to have classes that stack up with the rest of the conference and getting the guys you need? Well, you know, part of it is just having some clarity in the whole process and really understanding how it works, how recruiting rank- rankings work, um, trusting your own evaluations. And I'm not disregarding the rankings at all. You know, to me, it's something that I think brings a ton of value um, to fans of football. I think it's uh, 
you know, the various sites, rivals especially, that kind of is the flagship in that. Um, you know, guys do a great job of getting out, identifying kids, evaluating them, ranking them, and, you know, it brings interest. It's raised the profile, you know, formerly obviously as a high school coach, it raised the profile of high school football tremendously, and it also raises just the interest in the profile of the second season of college football, which is obviously the recruiting season. So now that's a phenomenon in itself. So, so the recruiting sites serve a very valuable purpose, um, and you do. I'm like Coach Odom. Like we, you know, when our class was bumping around the, the late 20s, we would hope we could get inside the top 25. Um, and so that's something that you get competitive. It's a goal you shoot for. But you can't lose sight of the most important thing, which is getting the best possible football players you can have on your roster. So um, just for the sake of this discussion, I woke up this morning. I looked up really quickly because I was pretty confident that I could. Um, guys who were 5.7 and 5.8, four and three stars, inversely, um, on rivals who signed with non-Power 5 programs. Now, obviously that very well could have been their choice, but in many cases it was because there were no Power 5 programs available to them. And so the way the rankings work sometimes, is just like us in evaluations in terms of offering kids, is you offer early, the rankings come out early sometimes. Sometimes a kid is overvalued because they mature early, they don't continue to develop, and sometimes kids are undervalued because they mature late. And sometimes just with the sheer volume that us as college evaluators and the recruiting sites, the sheer volume, it's hard to get to everybody. So there's going to be a lot of misses in both regards. And so at the end of the day, there were, I found just within about 10 minutes, I looked and found 15, 5.7 and 5.8 kids that we could have signed if we called a week before signing day. We could have kicked out some of the kids in our class that were ranked lower than that. And we would have been, you know, probably, 30, 28, 27, but we also would have downgraded our roster from where we are right now by doing that. And there were a couple of those kids, actually two four-star kids that based on our evaluation didn't merit either an offer or by the time it was time to to finish up, we had a better guy in that place who didn't have as many stars by their name, but you know, ultimately ended up being a much better player. Now we could have took those other kids and it boosts our recruiting ranking up. But, again, we're not as good a football team. And so, you know, the the kids that, you know, we can talk about, one of the things in our evaluations, you want to find guys who have really, really high-level athletic traits when it comes to just a pure athletic evaluation. Use a kid like Kobe Whitesides. Hadn't been talked about much. Everybody talked about his weight room prowess at the three different events. And, you know, he's a kid that bench pressed 430 pounds. He squatted 630 pounds. He showed up on our campus at 316 pounds, under-recruited because he's six-foot tall, but at the Nike opening, opening regional, he jumped a 33-inch vertical at 304 pounds. Wow. And from a body standpoint, he looks like a third-year NFL player. I've never seen a 300-pound-plus kid who was not already in the NFL who was built like Kobe Whiteside. So you get this kid with freakish traits, and he's missing one thing. He's missing height. Well, you see guys that look just like him in the NFL all the time, six foot, six foot one, 300 pounds, the same freakish athletic traits. And I could do the exact same thing with Tyree Gillespie, now, I don't know what he's missing, but, um, <laughs> you know, you do the same thing. You say, somehow, these guys, Kobe, I'm not, this is my first non-kicker 5.3 two-star. And it's a 305-pound kid with a 33-inch vertical, and someone assigned him two-star. I disagree. You well, know, I, we'll miss some, too. So, I, you know, so I get that part of it, too. But we found guys, our two-star guys, measurably. And even when you watch the film and the production, they're all-state football players, incredibly productive, good I would stack them up against a whole lot of guys that are signing with Mac and AAC and who are 5.6 and 5.7. And, you know, so our class easily, if you go by that, so, you know, so you got to keep it all in context and all in perspective. And, you know, 
it is what it is. When you're rattling off Kobe's uh, vitals, it reminded me of my favorite D tackle of all time, Jerry Ball from the Detroit Lions. That used to be uh, on yes, the, sir. the he used to do the pro am dunk contest, and you're like, how is this man <laughs> so big jumping up like that? That's crazy. No question, and, that, and that's you know same exact concept. And you know I, he reminds me, uh, and nowhere near as famous as Jerry Ball, but Lionel Dalton, who's a, a played with me at the Ravens from Detroit originally, uh, aka Jelly Roll, and uh, he's a little <laughs> bit better built than Jelly Roll, but. You know, Lionel played 10 years. Uh, he actually had a son in the 2017 class that I believe signed with Houston. But, uh, you know, same thing. You know, he played at Eastern Michigan because he was six foot, but he played 10 years in the NFL. And in that same class with the Ravens, a guy named Shartrick Darby, who was 5'10", who ended up winning the Super Bowl ring as a defensive tackle with the uh, Tampa Bay Bucks, and went on to play a long time with Seattle. And, you know, very similar guy, but, you know, we feel like we got a very, very good player in Kobe. And if he's six foot instead of six two. I don't think it's going to hurt him a whole heck of a lot in the trenches uh, with what he brings to the table. So, you know, for us, evaluation-wise, we got to go with that first. And if on top of that it, you know, brings us a higher recruiting ranking, then, you know, we're going to celebrate that too. Um, but, again, like I said, just all in context. Well, AJ, everybody listening to this is going to be disappointed to know that sometimes rivals messes up. Man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, we we do too, man. I, you know, it's, and it's we mess up, honestly, for the same reason. You know, uh it skews things. The kids got 40 offers that they're reporting and you see it's an offer from everywhere in the country. We have no way of verifying that offer and rivals has no way of really verifying it. You look at them and maybe you start seeing something you don't, you know, you're wondering, you look at them different because they got all of You got to put that out of your mind and go back. So it's hard. And again, volume, we're both faced with that sheer volume of recruits that you got to see and you got to, and then you see a kid that, doesn't have any offers and it's really 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 hard to then trust that there's something special there and so you know our coaching staff and and you know the rival staff and everything you're faced with the same dilemmas and it's an inexact science so you know it's part of it along those lines i know the rivals and us have a tough time evaluating um guys from missouri maybe or smaller towns and areas compared to guys that are in Southeast Florida with all the talent on all the teams. How do the coaches kind of look at that? How, how are you able to distinguish those guys that stand out on a team when they're the only D1 guy compared to a guy that's playing with 10 other D1 guys? You, you know, it's tough. There's so many factors that you have to evaluate. I mean, you take a kid in Houston that's playing in 80-degree weather on field turf versus a kid in Chicago that's playing in 30-degree weather in mud and grass, and you got to make a speed comparison on those two kids. So, you know, it's tough. And then, you know, when you branch out more, you aren't necessarily familiar in some places with the relative level of competition. So when you're in your footprint, and you have these recognizable schools, you can say, ah, okay, I get it. But, uh, you know, there is a big difference between a kid that's playing really, really high-level competition all the time and sometimes you're the best thing. Now, there's been plenty of small school guys that have gone on to be incredibly successful players and so you know at the end of the day you have to trust your physical evaluation you have to trust your character evaluation you have to make that evaluation aside from the competition they're playing but you also do give a little bit of benefit of doubt to a kid that's doing it at a real high level that's a little bit it's not your evaluation but it's a little bit of uh, a security blanket in your evaluation i mean that little thing that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable in believing what you see i want to spend the last few minutes kind of talking about general philosophy and you, you said earlier that you guys have to out-evaluate other programs. And you and I have talked about this, and, and I've talked about this on our site for years. I think you and I kind of have a, a similar view, but I, I just kind of want to make a comment and let you react. I mean, look, the way recruiting rankings work and all that, we all know the top 
200 – like I looked a couple weeks ago, 70% of the top 200 kids are going to like 15 schools. Um, yep. the, the rankings are pretty much always going to be skewed. So because of geography and because of that factor, like a top 15 class for Missouri on a regular basis is probably not a realistic goal. When you say out-evaluate, just explain – I guess I want to give you kind of the platform. Explain to, to the fans what you mean there. Okay, the, you know, just from a pure recruiting philosophy, uh, one of the things that I've always seen over the years, uh, and I really, really believe, is there's probably 15 to 20 kids nationally that are unique and special, and there's only one of them, and they are trans- uh, transformational players. They're franchise guys. A guy like Sheldon Richardson, you know, there may be one of those in the country every year. Um, you know, and you could name a franchise QB. I don't know who, you know, recently maybe a guy like a Josh Rosen at UCLA or something like that, and you say, hey, there's one guy like that nationally. About 15 to 20 of those guys a year. Once you get outside of that, there's a lot of guys that are very, very similar in terms of athletic trade and production and all those things, and you just got to go out and find them. One, you have to be very good within your footprint and understand what your footprint is and what makes sense in terms of establishing a footprint. And then you also have to be willing to outwork to find guys outside of the footprint that you can get that can fill a role. And so, again, you know, you use the example in the guy who I love, you know, Aaron White, you know, is like family to me, went to Georgia, had a productive career, um, you know, maybe 10 to 12 touchdowns in his career, gave the commencement speech at his, uh, for his graduation ceremony. But when Mizzou misses Aaron White, they went out and found Michael Agnew, mm-hmm. uh, you know, third-round draft pick, All-American. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's what you have to be able to do. And so when you talk about out evaluate and working, you have to be able to really, really understand projecting athletes. You have to really, really be able to understand what traits are special. You know, Michael Egner was a 25-foot long jumper. That was special. When you talk about Kobe White size of the 33-inch vertical, that's special, similar to Mike. So you got to go out and be able to find those guys. And sometimes they're outside of your footprint. Sometimes they're hidden in your footprint. But outside of that special 15 to 20, if you work hard enough, you can find a guy – who has the exact same physical traits and the exact same skill set and the exact same ability of a kid with 40 offers. But you just have to believe what you see and you have to trust your evaluation. And, you know, it's, to me, if they have the physical traits, if they have elite physical traits, it's not a reach. Michael Egner wasn't a reach. He's a, 25, a tight end with a 25-foot long jump. I think I was maybe a 15-foot long jumper. You know, I might <laughs> even tripped and fell in the pit face first. So, uh, you know, so some of those things don't lie. And you just have to be able to know what those markers are. But – from that standpoint, I think we've done a hell of a job with this class and going out and finding really, really special football players. Um, and I think it was validated by the programs that came in and, and recognized after uh, said, you know, these guys are pretty special and we want them in our program too. So, How, how many times – you're talking about other offers and stuff like that. Um, how many times throughout the year is your coaching staff or any coaching – I mean, this is a general question – going to get together and say, okay, let's go over this. Now, hang on. This kid just picked up offers from Notre Dame, Tennessee, whatever. It, do we need to go back and look? Is there something we missed? I mean, how much does that happen at, at Missouri or anywhere? Um, I think it'll always cause you to double check. You know, if you if you have evaluated the kid and he didn't meet the criteria that that you feel like he needed to to get an offer, and then all of a sudden everybody else starts offering, it's going to give everybody pause and say, oh, wait a minute, we, we need to go reevaluate this thing. Um, to me, the important part is that you don't let that skew your evaluation. The important part is you still look at the same things, you evaluate the same way, and that's not easy to do. 
because there also becomes a certain amount of pressure publicly to say, hey, why are all these schools? Because people, again, the thing that people I think often don't understand is, one, it's you cannot verify those offers. You know, we had right. several kids during this cycle that claimed Missouri offers that I had never heard of. <laughs> so you can't verify the offers. Secondly, unfortunately, nowadays, all offers are not created equal. Right. So having an offer and being able to commit to that offer are two different things. Um, so, you know, people see the offers, they get hung up in that, and then, you know, at the end of the cycle, you know, the kids come into an FCS school. How- and so – you know. Yeah. How much, and, and I will admit this is partly a selfish motive on my part because I'm in the media and I cover recruiting, but how much yeah. of that could be, um, I guess, avoided? And do you think it would be a good or a bad thing in the recruiting process if, like, look, I can't call Barry Odom and say, what do you think about this kid as a player? He can't talk about him. But if Barry yeah. Odom and other head coaches had the ability to say, yes, we've offered this kid or no way you know to be able to somewhat on the record discuss these kids would that be a bad thing or would that maybe help the process and help these kids if there was a way to really really um pinpoint how we're able to discuss prospects which i don't know that there is then it would be beneficial because at least everybody could kind of be on the same page um you know right now as coaches you're pretty much at the mercy of what everyone else wants to say about the situation you're not allowed to comment on it and so that's tough the only problem obviously is um you know once that pandora's box is opened you know then the abuse is involved in you know using that to get a recruiting advantage and using that to promote a kid or using that for you know whatever so the ncaa i will say is doing a really good job of always evaluating everything i mean the new rules with twitter were allowed to like or favorite something we aren't allowed to comment, but we are allowed to at least do that to acknowledge it. And those kind of common sense, practical things that make communication, allowing us to text, um, to DM, some of those kind of things that that just practically make sense. So we're we're moving forward to a place that things continue to make more sense and are more productive and efficient. But you know, just got to be very careful because uh, you know, obviously, there's always that fear of things being abused. I mean, there's some new rule changes coming up even in the near future with possibly early signing dates, um, some other things. Where, where do you kind of fall on all those that the uh, NCAA is going to be voting on? Um, you know, as far as the, the early signing date, thing, just understanding the, the sheer logistics of things. Uh, you know, I think the people that are in favor of early signing dates are people that feel like um, – you lose a prospect late in the process and it would prevent that. I, I don't know that I necessarily believe that. I just think you'd lose them earlier in the process. I think it would accelerate everything. It pushes everything forward. If you don't change the actual calendar that we can start communicating with kids, an earlier signing date gives you less time to really actually get to know who you're bringing on campus. Uh, I'm a little fearful of that. I, you know, I don't think, I think a December signing date for high school kids that's very similar to the junior college signing date would make sense, but it would only be for kids that are early enrollees. That would, because right now we can't sign early enrollees. They mm-hmm. just kind of have to sign a scholarship agreement and hope they show up. And so having a, a December signing day for early enrollees makes sense to me. Um, but having a June signing date or something like that, I just couldn't even imagine the nightmare of trying to host official visits in the summer when you got camps and you got, 
everything else going on and you barely know a kid and they're trying to make a decision in that small window. And I just think it would accelerate everything. You'd still have guys losing people at the, in the 11th hour. It just would happen in June instead of yeah. uh, February. So Last thing for me, and, and I talked to uh, Coach Cross and, and, uh, and Coach Odom about this yesterday, and again, understanding that you guys can't talk about any specific uh, players, but you have been around high school football in the state of Missouri for a long time. And uh, it, upcoming in this next year or two, it looks to everybody like maybe there has never been this level of high-end talent in the state of Missouri. Is that fair to say? Uh, you know, it, there hasn't been the volume in a long time. Uh, you know, there's been some high-end guys, but not the sheer number of high-end guys. And, you know, what it reminds me of is my second year at Mizzou, and this was actually Coach Cross's senior year in high school, the 92 class, which had uh, – a bunch of guys that went on to be successful college players. And there was a ton of depth uh, in St. Louis, especially, but also Kansas city at that time. And, th- and this class is, is very similar uh, to that in terms of just the sheer depth and volume uh, across the state. And, you know, and there's a second level of guys that's emerging that, you know, that will also be pretty highly regarded. And so, you know, for us, uh, that's a good thing because obviously that's smack dab in the center of our footprint. We want to make sure that, that we do a great job there. Um, and so, yeah, definitely. I, I would say it is, it's going to be a special year in the state of Missouri, just in terms of uh, the, the depth and, and the level of, of high school football talent. So that's an exciting thing. Damani brought up that exact same class and I asked him who the best player out of that class turned out to be. He said it was him. I don't know if you remember any of the other guys, but I do remember a lot of them. And, uh, yeah, it was him. I'll say it was him. <laughs> <laughs> good there, there, there was some good players in that class, though. I absolutely was a good player. So that's uh, actually one of my uh, former roommates at Baltimore, a uh, guy I shared a, a, a townhouse with for a year. Deron Jenkins was one of them. He was a second-round pick for the Ravens, really good player. I remember Ronnie Ward in that class, who was a third-round pick for the Dolphins, I think. Dorian Brew, I believe, was in that class, who was also a third-round pick for the Ravens. Uh, it was quite a few good football players in that class. A lot of NFL talent. A lot of guys that went all the, all over the place. You know, if that group of guys, and it's funny, I say these names now, and 20 years later, you know, it's kind of like, who, huh, where? Yeah, where? I, you know, I didn't know. recognize about half yeah. of those guys. You don't, you don't remember any of those guys. And so, you know, the thing that you look at, if and this kind of is interesting because it's a little bit of deja vu because one of the things that we talked about when that class came out, one of the things that we talked to those guys about back then is if all of you guys came here, you would have statues built. You know, they'd be, they'd be talking about you 20 years later. It'd be, and you know, it would have done something unprecedented. And, you know, those guys went on and, you know, as, as often happens, you know, they go on and they, they did the individual decision that they felt was best for themselves. And some of those guys had, you know, again, good careers and went on to fulfill all their dreams. But, um, you know, it wasn't that special thing that that group could have produced, um, you know, and so that's the thing that you look at. And that's always the tempting thing. And I know each individual prospect has to make their own personal evaluation, just like we do when we're deciding who to offer, they do when they're deciding where to go. But, you know, that group could have been legendary had they all landed, you know, in Columbia. And, uh, you know, and again, that's both sides of the state. So, yeah. but, you know, that's yesteryear. So. <laughs> all right. Well, AJ, we appreciate it, man. I, I think you get – you we've taken up enough of your, like, 12 hours of vacation before you uh, <laughs> get back to it. 
Uh, yeah, it's no problem at all. I enjoy talking about it. I love talking about this stuff, so anytime. All right, have a good one, AJ. Thanks a lot, man. All right, you, you too now. Yeah. All right, AJ Ofadale, Director of Recruiting at Missouri. And, um, you know, Brian, it's pretty interesting. We'll, we'll spend a few minutes before we wrap up. I mean, I, I've talked to AJ about this stuff before, even when he was a high school coach. Like, fans don't want to hear it. Fans want to say, why can't we have the number two recruiting class in America? Right. There are tears in this thing. I think one thing that this staff really has working for it I think Barry Odom, Andy Hill, Cornell Ford, A.J. Ofadale, Damani Cross, these guys have a background in this state. They understand how Missouri has to recruit. Now, that doesn't mean they're not trying to get the best players they can get. But, look, Alabama picks. (laughs) Ohio State picks. Missouri has to kind of uh, go about it a different way. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I mean, the numbers in state just aren't there. The the local talent base isn't there that Alabama has, that – those schools in the Southeast have, and then the name recognition, the national championships, all that kind of stuff. It's, I mean, it's just a different game for Missouri, and that doesn't mean you can't turn it into a successful class and have great years. Missouri's done it in the past. They've been to the SEC championship games. Maybe the one thing, if they're able to just add a few more pieces here and there to that process in the past, they might be able to take that step to get championship win. But uh, I, I don't know. I guess that's what you'll have to see from Odom if that's something – He's him and his staff are able to do to get those couple couple extra pieces that they weren't uh, ever able to get under Pinkle. Yeah, and uh, you know I I enjoyed kind of talking about the rankings with him because uh, one thing I like about this staff, like if you ask Gary Pinkle about rankings, dude, it, the conversation was over. Right, like, that was and and a lot of coaches are that way, but but these guys acknowledge him, and I think in an honest moment would say, look. 49th on a regular basis is probably not winning in the SEC. But somebody posted on our message board today something as simple as Terry Petrie, had he not been downgraded from a four-star to a three-star, Missouri has pretty much the exact same class as the class that is ranked number 30 in the country. Like, it's kind of like with AJ was saying there's 25 players. Look, there's probably seven recruiting classes that you look at and go, yeah, clearly. Like, right. that's that's above and beyond. But beyond that, the difference between like twelve and forty isn't really all that right, big. Pretty small, and and yeah, like you said, they don't want to live down there. But it's it's not a huge difference. Yeah, and so uh, again, we appreciate AJ taking some time. I mean, I, I don't think people understand how truly like recruiting it, it literally never stops. I know for a fact the coaches were. Uh, we're on the phone with 2018 kids yesterday, you know, in the middle of signing the class of 2017, they're talking to 2018 kids while also traveling all over the state. I mean, this is a, a not even year round, like, like you said, two or three years in advance project. Right. It's, it's never ending. It's, it's why they have to have offices of 10 or 12 people working on it. The, uh, the, the development of the graphic side of it's pretty interesting to me because mm-hmm. I've worked kind of technical side of things before like that. And it's just, it's crazy. I know ESPN had a big article on some graphic designer that was at Ohio state that Tom Herman tried to pull away and then Ohio state offered him more money. And, and it's just, uh, I mean, it's the arms race. It's like yeah. anything. Once they start, they just, it, and sometimes you think, man, it's, if you wish there was some sort of way from the kind of rain, all this stuff in a little bit, but I mean, it's, it's a uh, free market. That's what you get. You get people that push the envelope and take it to that next level, and then everybody's got to kind of follow up, and then somebody else is going to decide, oh, let's do this, jump ahead, and then everybody else is going to try to catch up. And, and look, people can think it's dumb. Kind of like I think uniforms are dumb. 
I don't care. But kids care. Like, it's a big deal. I'm waiting for the day we see a kid base his decision on which coaching staff or which fan base gave him the most likes on his commitment announcement or something. Right. Just uh, put up a... uh a poll on Twitter and just have him vote. And that's where he's where going. Should I go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, if you think it's not coming, it, it's going to happen at some point. One thing that we, and we just didn't want to keep AJ. I mean, AJ could talk recruiting for days. We could have had right. him on here for two hours. Um, but one thing I didn't ask him about, but, but I do hope to get him and Barry Odom and, and Jim Sterk uh, to talk about, and I want to do a story on it before spring football is okay. How much, why do facilities matter? Like we hear they matter. Right. But why do you need a better locker room? Do you need the weight room overlooking the, the stadium? How – they've told us, Gary Pinkle famously said, there better be a crane in the air at all times. Like, I want to know how big a factor is that and why is it? You know, I, I don't know what the answer is. But, I mean, he kind of – Coach O'Father kind of mentioned it. I mean, vanity a little bit. I mean, and that's not a bad thing. It's just the way right. – I mean, you like to have the nicest house you can. You like to have the – nicest car you can or not most people there's some people that don't care about that stuff at all but especially when you're dealing with teenagers I think that's they're in that demographic where they're this day and age they get bombarded with this is what Hollywood does this is what superstar athletes do this is if you want to be cool if you want to be popular this is the kind of stuff you have and it's uh I don't know that's a whole nother like sociological yeah. talk. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here and just kind of finish with like, look, you guys know most of our thoughts on the the two that if you've managed to find this podcast, you've probably read what we think about the class for the most part and all that. But I uh, just kind of want to go Brian first, and then I'll finish up. Uh, you had a little six month uh, six month <laughs> break, but you covered a lot of the 2017 class, and now we'll we'll fully be immersed in 2018. So just. I don't care whatever direction you want to go, kind of parting shot as we wrap up National Signing Day and look to next year. Um, it, was a, it was a fun class to cover, especially with Jamal Brooks, the way he kind of spearheaded the, the recruiting through social media and whatnot. That was something that the last few classes hadn't had, really. Um, there was a little bit of, I mean, in the 2016 class, they were pretty tight and they were, they talked a little bit and posted stuff, but just n- nothing on that level. And that, that made it interesting to follow. I, I know it was interesting for the fans. It, <clears throat> and then the big thing, I think, is just the way they were able to identify the needs and go in there and, and get guys to fill it. Those three, uh, uh, Coach Afali said at the top three jun- junior college defensive tackles on their board, they were able to go and land all three of them. That's, I mean, that was such a big position of need. It, I know fans, we said they want the high-ranking classes, all that kind of stuff. Right now, with everything that's gone on, with the coaching change and everything that's happened at Missouri the last couple of years, I think that's a little unreasonable. Mm-hmm. But they they were able to do what they needed to do to get themselves in a position to hopefully win eight games next year, seven games next year, and then take that step with that 2018 class and, and maybe get the ball rolling. Yeah, and, and that's where I'm kind of going to go with, with my parting thoughts is that 2018 class, like this was a fun class to cover. We've I've been doing this for 14 years now. We've not covered anything like this yeah. next 12 months is going to be like. Um, from a ve- I know Missouri fans, Missouri coach, everybody that listens to this that wants Missouri to do well is really going to hate me in the next 30 seconds. But, like, uh, I'm kind of thinking how incredible would it be to see, like, these six kids in St. Louis and the three kids in Kansas City, like, all – on National Signing, Signing Day, Day, I was just thinking deciding the same thing. where to go. Where like you go to Kansas City and I go to St. Louis, and like we don't even have anybody in Columbia on National Signing Day because uh, this thing's unfolding. And 
look, you basically just heard A.J. Ofadale lay out Missouri's pitch to these kids. Right. If you guys do this, they will build statues of right. you, and they will know who you are in 20 years. And, like, look, will it work? I, I mean, are they all ending up the same place? It, whether it's Missouri, Ohio State, Alabama, whatever, probably not. Right. I, I mean, it's not realistic to think that they are, but I, that's Missouri's pitch. Like, hey, if we can get six of you guys to do this, like, you will be looked at like kind of like the, the Denman English class mm-hmm. was a little bit in basketball. Obviously, it's fallen off, but, you know, kind of like the senior class in 1994 in basketball, the mm-hmm. Booker, Crudup, all those guys. Like, if Missouri gets good again, they will – you will be the guys that started it. And now all we got to find out is, is that pitch powerful enough? Right. It's almost, I mean, this might be a little bit too much hyperbole, but it makes me kind of think of, for Missouri standards, like a Fab Five kind of thing where you, I mean. Exactly. Yeah, you just got these guys coming in that everybody's going to be so excited about. Basketball and football are different, obviously. It it doesn't translate exactly the same, but they would still be such a huge um, level of excitement among Missouri fans if they were able to, get six that's a I think if they were able to even get half that would be a pretty good haul um six would be great getting them all uh, it just seems impossible especially yeah. since some, there's a lot of positional and, overlap and stuff like that right so. and that's not because it's Missouri like if these nine kids were in Louisiana I don't think right. LSU would sign them all. right yeah like, the top players in Georgia don't always go to Georgia the top players in yeah, it, it's it's tough for any in-state school to keep every high-level re- recruit in the state. Yeah, well, uh, really, again, uh, p- happy to have AJ join us, take some time. Uh, I mean, those guys were in Columbia, St. Louis, Kansas City. Oh, by the way, they were on the phone all day. They were <laughs> wrapping up that class until 6.15, so appreciate him taking half hour out of his day to kind of give you guys a, a little bit of a, hopefully, a peek behind the curtain. And... Um, we are going to take, uh, I don't know, the rest of today off, and that's about it, I think. Yeah, that's probably right. We'll be contacting some 2018 kids uh, starting tomorrow. All right, so uh, we will be back next week on the podcast. We're going to try to do it every Thursday. Uh, Missouri's at Florida tonight as a 22-and-a-half-point underdog, so I don't know. If you just need to flush football out of your system, maybe you'll tune in. But uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back talking at you a week from today.